0: Welcome to Your Money Story. I'm Dawn Thomas, a mother of three, financial advisor by day, and a PhD candidate studying the experience of Generation Z with the superannuation system. This podcast provides a platform for stories that are underrepresented. Everyone's money story is unique. My guests are people who conduct their lives with purpose, authenticity, and are not afraid of being different. They stand out within their industries for being themselves. I hope their journeys inspire you to harness your own gifts and talents. I'm a believer of living your truth each day. Let's change how the story ends. We acknowledge the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation as the traditional custodians of this country and its waters and where this podcast is recorded on. Stands on Noongar Country. We pay our respects to Noongar elders, past and present and acknowledge their wisdom and advice. The information discussed in this podcast does not take into account your personal and financial objectives and situation. Before acting on any information discussed here, you should consider its appropriateness having regard to your objectives, needs and financial situation. This episode, we discuss various areas of being ethical. We have Nathan Fradley, founder of Ethos Australia, financial advisor, XY Ethics Committee founding member and podcast host of Good for the Bee. Nathan cares about the climate and the community, and he's willing to let various aspects of his life evidence that. Nathan shares how he has stayed true to his own values and unique talents within his financial advising career, and why investing according to ethics and values is so powerful. Today on Your Money Story, I'm delighted to have the amazing Nathan to talk to us about all things ethical. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thank you. So, are you surprised that you've been picked for this topic, Nathan?
1: (laughs) Not, not even slightly.
0: (laughs) Not even. I know. I know. You own this space. So, listeners, um, I'm so fascinated by Nathan's content because he really knows who he is as an advisor, but really in terms of the spectrum of ethical um, topics, he's not just you know, stopping one area, he's talking about ethical investments, about being ethical in your job. And I think in this time, um, it's a really important conversation for all of us. So Nathan, what motivator to pursue this journey that you're on?
1: Fundamentally, um, I remember hearing this saying, do good and you'll do well. And I think a lot of people know, know that saying quite well. Um, But I remember hearing that 20 odd years ago. Mm -hmm. I think that's just stuck with me I mean, there's just this in, internal drive around doing the right thing and always doing the right thing and and things will work out and although sometimes you look around and you think well, these people out here aren't doing the right thing mm. you know, eventually that'll get they'll get caught out or maybe they won't but it's not a, not a game I ever wanted to play I think I've always been driven by just doing the right thing and and being a good person inherently and and that sort of maps out well
0: yeah I mean, but you've certainly Design your own pathway in terms of how you stand within the financial planning industry um you are your own person it's really hard to actually um compare you to anyone else you know what what's given you uh, that confidence i know you say that's the only way that you you just exist right but but what makes you so confident to do that because it can be difficult to be different
1: Mm, that's that's actually really interesting if we go back So I've been an advisor now since 2011 Mm. and I was sort of, I was 21 at the time. Okay. So I was the youngest appointed appointed advisor in the country and I was sort of put on as a bit of a wild card into this (laughs) team that NAB were building. They were like getting like teachers and, you know, random people from different sectors and there was an Aikido teacher and there was a, there was all sorts of different people they were bringing together and saying these people have skills that aren't explicitly financial and we can train them in the financial aspect and get them out. And it was a really, really great program. And that's sort of where we started from and we got this 12-week intensive and then off we went as junior planners. And I just sort of ran around and, and was – Myself yeah, effectively and just doing my thing, and I was quite successful at that. And then I remember sort of stepping up into the the more corporate world and, and being promoted in the planning scheme, and found myself sort of becoming more like everyone else a little bit. Um, you know, the planners I was I was working with, the people I was spending time with, um, I sort of found myself moving in that direction. And as strange as it sounds, I almost became inherently less happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I was sort of and then acting out really weirdly. So all of a sudden, I started studying a postgrad in astronomy, um, and spending my weekends writing writing essays on Mars. Um, I bought a turtle. Um, like my weirdness could not be could not be you know restrained, and so I went and bought a pet that lives for a hundred years. Um, you know, and he's, he's, he's great at the moment. He's very strange turtle. He's very social. He actually likes pats. It's very weird. Um, He's in my will um, and to my wife's delight, not to her. It's going, he's going to my sister. So, you know, these little things like sprouted out when I tried to be too normal, I suppose Mm -hmm. you'd call it. And so I, I realized I was chatting to a mentor of mine and I said, do you think my weirdness is annoying? And he said, no, I think it's endearing. You should never lose it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuck with me quite, quite strongly. So I had to do things the Nathan way, because if I was true to myself, I would do a great job of it. And I, and, and I think that from that moment on, I just settled on that, that, that this is how I do things. And it's not going to rub everyone the right way, but I've not, generally not really had an issue. I think, yeah, it kind of sprites from that. So, you know, at times you do, you can sway away from, Being true to yourself or find yourself falling in with a group or community where you become more like Mm -hmm. the pack um but i think yeah what inherently that did to me was that it made me even weirder
0: i think we all learn to cope with with when something's not right you're trying to find this sense of belonging and um it what do you call that like joy right you you start finding in other other strange ways but that's an indication that maybe something's not right in the day job itself Mm -hmm. um and i've spoken to a number of women, we've had a lot of women on this podcast and and what's come out is that when we start the financial planning journey, we try and, you know, almost hide our difference in the beginning because we are just trying to fit in and get the job done. You know, it's really like survival mode, Uh, but there comes a really beautiful time in financial advice where you kind of go, oh, forget everything that's been taught to me about the traditional ways, (laughs) you realize that you can pretty much cut your own pathway because you've decided who you help best as well. Who do you help best, Nathan? Um,
1: interestingly, I, I've, I've always had the belief you don't choose your target demographics. They choose you. Mm-hmm. And my, almost my entire client demographic, uh, the lead client or the only client is a woman between the age of 45 and 65. Uh, <laughs> so
0: wonderful. I don't, know,
1: <laughs> I don't know why. That's my entire client base. Yeah, it, it's... um. It's, it tends to be either women that have found themselves um, not recently single, but, you know, sort of been, been single long enough that they've decided to take control of their finances or it's a relationship where um, generally he has managed the money and for some reason, and I, I, I tend not to dive into what happened to cause that, but they've come and sought advice mm. and she's decided to take over the money side of things. And that's not all my clients, but I think, um, I worked out it was something like 90% of my clients this year. The lead <laughs> client has been a woman. Wow. And of my client base prior to this year, it was 65% of my total client base. Wow. Um, so that would be higher now. I reckon that would be up at 80% of my client base would be that situation. So
0: that That is such a lesson, right? That I think people can learn. I think what what happens a lot in the industry is that it's left up to female advisors to try and service the female clients. And it's, it's just not feasible because... Um, I think it's about 80% of financial advisors are men. <laughs> so
1: it, you've actually, we've actually just gone over the 20% mark for females. So it's 79. something.
0: 79. Yeah. so, so We're, like we're getting there. I don't
1: think that's for, for lack of trying. I think that might be due to exiting males more than it is entering females. But um,
0: yeah. yeah. So I think to hear that story that you are attracting that client base again, it's something that is such a different story because like you're attracting them. Like you said, if not, really going out to seek them, they've, they've sought you out based on whatever you're throwing out to the universe of, mm. of how you operate. Um, and I think that's really cool. Like that is so, so cool, uh, because you're not slanting it. You're just, you're just attracting those clients by who you are. Why is it important to actually help that demographic, Nathan? Uh, I think,
1: well, fundamentally, it's half the population. Mm. So, if we have twenty percent of the advisors that are female, and only female advisors service female clients, then we've got a bit of a mismatch. <laughs> um, but I also think uh, one of the interesting things I've noticed, particularly in my fifty-five age group women, mm-hmm. is that they've grown up. And this is a broadly speaking, they've tended to grow up in a in a generation where you know they were uh, probably not listened to as much. And generally, more of a patriarchal environment. Um, they, you know, maybe they had a bit of a career, then they started a family. So they stepped away from the workforce for an extended period of time because that's what you did. Mm-hmm. And then they went to re enter the workforce and they've been seen as being out of work for 10 years, 15 years, yeah. as opposed to working in their home duty capacity. Yes. You know, as as if, you know, not working in a specifically paid occupation means they haven't learned anything over the last 15 years. Yes. <laughs> and and so then they try and get back to the workforce and then they're starting from the bottom there. Um, I I think that entire time they tend to operate behind the scenes a lot. I don't think they've generally been listened to. And then they unfortunately branded with this whole Karen effect that I feel like we're seeing at the moment as well. So they've gone from not being listened to due to patriarchal elements to now not being listened to uh, due to the loud voices of the minority. And I don't know, maybe I I find just listening helps. Uh, I think we're we're an occupation that we should be listeners, not tellers. Mm. And I think traditionally we've always been tellers we, someone comes in and says, what do I do? And we say, go do this. And there's no, there's no discussion around yes. that. And the way I operate um, within my process is very much um, a listening and guiding and principle. Um, you know, I can't, we can't hold hands through process anymore because that might spread you know, COVID. <laughs> but the, I think, you know, when a client comes in and says, I want to do this um, I'll give you an example of a recent one I work with. So she um, at the age of 50 separated, um, got a job in an office and um, basically rented and worked in that office. Her kids were all adults. They are all at her home. She spent the majority of the time before that point, you know, being a stay-at-home mother. And so now she's sort of the office manager. She's the go-to guru. She was 66 years old and she loves her job. And her dilemma was that she didn't own a home. Mm-hmm. And so she had a couple of hundred grand to her name and she just inherited a, little, a bit over a hundred grand. And... So, you know, does she buy a house? Um, She'd never enough money to buy one outright in where she lived. Um, Does she not buy a house? You know, all these sorts of factors. So we spent most of the work together determining, you know, if she moved away from where she was and what that would look like and what's important to her about that, you know, owning a house and, you know, if she moved out to the country, but what's, what's the downsides of that being away from her family and her adult children with their children Mm -hmm. um, versus taking on a small mortgage, Um, and trying to pay that off, but having the idea of paying more for a house and less for retirement versus not taking a mortgage and renting and the inherent downsides that come with that. And and one of her biggest, strongest, um, I suppose, values in that was the sense of security of the home. And she found that when we walked through these different options, before we got to which super fund was best for her and all that sort of stuff, we are walking through these options and it was really clear that she'd moved five times in seven years. Mm -hmm. And to her, renting was, you know, the next 30 years of doing that. And every year that would get harder and harder and harder and more expensive because she had to, you know, move and and pay for removalists and and all the rest of it. So, you know, the the conversation then came back to trying to find her a solution where she could be a homeowner, wearing the fact that maybe she's not going to have as much income in retirement, but having that sense of security. And I think that entire process comes back to, Listening to what that person says and what's important to them, hearing what they've said and what's important maybe not with their words, but their body language, with the way they reacted, change of topics, and then guiding them as a financial advisor into not which superannuation or investment is the best option, but really what's the best step in their life. This is a major point in her life where she determines her retirement trajectory and sense of security. And yeah, it all comes back to listening. She walked in the room and I said, oh, just set up an account-based pension and put your money in super and blah, blah, blah. That's not inherently helping her. That there's, there's an underlying driver and an underlying issue that, that's, that sat in this client's life. And it was a matter of you know, diagnosing that properly so that we could prescribe the right solution as opposed to just you know, take some Panadol and see you later.
0: One way of seeing the old school way of financial advice is that it can be quite dictative. Um, and that's why it's and, and I think maybe that's where there's a, almost a power disparity between advisor and client as well. And some mm-hmm. people like it that way that you've got I'm gonna hold the knowledge in my hand, make it really complex so that I just you know make you see stars from from just not understanding all these clever, clever things that we're doing apparently. Uh, but I think there's a certain amount of beauty where when you collaborate with your clients and they feel empowered, I think that's one of the best feelings in the job when when they've come in thinking that they can't do something, and then they leave knowing that they absolutely can, mm-hmm. um, and and that's part of an interesting part of our job, isn't it? Is that building a self belief, removing that chaos and messiness, and then getting them to that outcome. You know, so you're talking about the conversations. Those conversations are the foundation of everything we do. Um, so it it it's really good to hear that you are helping uh, female clients that way. You know, that's something that's really close to my heart. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, it, it's reassuring uh, for someone like me to actually hear that, that we've got advisors like you, and we need more advisors like you actually having that focus. Have you, like currently where you are, like you you seem so comfortable with what you do. Do you still get judged by the broader community for the approach that you you take?
1: Um, not that I'm aware of. Okay. But, but maybe it's the circles that I move in. Mm. And I think that's, that's the interesting thing. I think I, when I started my own business after I left the bank, I kind of laid low for a while and um, really developed my craft and what I was doing. So I didn't, I wasn't going to a lot of the functions or or networking or anything like that. I had a fund manager um, say to me recently, he goes, you didn't exist in my radar three months ago and you just appeared out of nowhere. Like who even are you? And I thought that was amusing because I, I I, think I really wanted to get my craft right. And it's taken 10 years to, to really have, you'd mentioned confidence, confidence in my process and exactly mm. how to do things. Um, some of those skills I've only developed recently, you know, the, I think the process of walking through the strategic aspects of the advice and really refining those before we looked at any product areas is something I've developed in the last two years. So I think, not so much, um, but maybe I don't hang out with the people that um, that would be upset by that. I, mm. If you look at the traditional way advice is done, it was done when we're licensed to sell financial products. That's mm. what we're licensed to do. And I think we found a lot of advisors, operators, you said as gatekeepers. They 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 have the knowledge or they have the product and there was no way you mm. had to go through them to yep. self-manage super fund, to invest money, to get insurance. to, And it was very much a transaction. You just had to transact through them. Mm. That business model will be replaced by yes. robo-advice at some point in time mm. because you're not you're not doing anything that a system can't do without you. The rise of ETFs, the rise of investment apps, um, the the decrease in insurance commissions, all these kinds of things made those business models completely redundant. And it really, it, it, it highlighted with that the value of great advisors um, have been. And there's been great advisors for the last, you know, I've met plenty of them the last 10 mm. years. This is not a new thing. That the focus on the person and the their personal attributes that they bring to the table and that level of comfort, and the and the person that they're dealing with, I think that I think those advisors have always been around, um, and it's more that maybe I just try and ignore the advisors that aren't graded advisors, <laughs> unless <laughs> I'm reading like the IFA comments section or something for some yeah. satire.
0: You've hit a key point, again, that's come up a lot in our um, podcast as well, is that sense of community and who you surround yourself with. I think a key thing is that um, there could be naysayers and there could be negative comments, but if you can shut it out as much as possible by just keeping the the people who do invigorate you and do champion you and do understand what you're doing, I think that helps a lot. So you're right. And I think from a day-to-day, you're probably surrounded by people who get what you're doing and feel joy from what you're doing. <laughs> so it's that that's fantastic like you you it's almost like the like a safety bubble
1: <laughs> you know what is really interesting is um and this literally happened the other day you messaged me with something that was yeah. really appreciative and at the same time i had i was arguing with someone on the internet about climate change and which i know you shouldn't do yeah and i just couldn't help myself and it was it looked it was a very civil discussion actually it was it was quite good but the I was fixated on this, you know, you get, you get fixated on these online conversations, which way you should avoid them. I was fixated on this conversation and I realised as I was heading to bed and my brain was going a million miles an hour about, you know, mm. what reply I could put in or something, that I was stuck on this negative aspect of at the exact same moment I'd received a positive response from mm. you and it's something something of of joy and, and appreciation and, and happiness, but yet I got stuck on the negative one. Uh-huh. And I think that's maybe a really important thing we have to pay attention to. We could hear a hundred positive and appreciative comments, but we hear one negative one, and we get fixated on it. Mm. You know, you see one bad comment on a post, you hear one one person, you know, this person doesn't like you, you said this or doesn't like you for this yeah. act, and you go, yeah, but these 370 other people think I'm great and, yep. and really appreciate me, and and you know, I think that's maybe an interesting thing that we're as humans we so easily get stuck on the the negative. Yes. Don't, don't take the time to appreciate and, and take into account all the positive that we have at the same time.
0: You know, I, I see you, you're very open about um, a lot of posts around ethical investments and, and things like that. And I know that's really um, a progressive way of of looking at investments and financial advice. And I know that, you know, like I ob- observe that you have put those posts on there, but I do think, um, you know, possibly you will get some people who disagree with your point of view. Trying to, I mean, I guess that's the danger of when you're coming up with your point of view, uh, which you're 100% confident in. Equally, there'll be some people who decide that it's their pastime to try and put negative comments. And, okay. you know, it's like almost like a pastime where instead of ignoring a post, they might just want to try and attack you for your belief system. Yeah, it's an interesting point you, you did raise that, yeah, we do get fixated on that, but it shouldn't derail you because it doesn't look like you're derailed. You still, every day, I still see your posts. It's it's as sure as anything, <laughs> as the, as sure as the sun will come up, I'll see your posts. <laughs> wow. Look,
1: yeah. no, no matter how many people don't believe in climate change, if we do yeah. nothing about it, it's going to happen. Yeah. So what's yeah. Happening? It's happening, it's happening right now. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I think that gives me a fair sense of security in that, in that aspect. and And I also think it's, it's interesting that the, like that, that conversation wasn't yeah. inherently negative. Yeah. It's very quickly, you can very quickly respond negatively to it. Someone said I was wrong. I'm going to, yeah. you know, I think the first thing I needed to is that I wasn't going to change this guy's mind mm-hmm. um, no matter how many facts and studies that I yes. post and, and the rest of it. But I decided to continue on the conversation one because it was quite civil. So it helped me form my opinion better to the more comments you have on a LinkedIn post, the, the better your, your algorithm <laughs> yeah. and I actually thanked him at one point for the yeah. algorithm up, uh, improvement and and three that someone might go and click on that and read it. And if they yeah. read it and they had their mind changed or they did the extra research, then, then that was beneficial. So, but it was quite a civil, it was quite a civil conversation, but I think you're not going to, you know, I, I, I inherently live in a bubble thanks to social media yes. and the fact that I live in the most progressive suburb in the People's Republic of Northgate, most pre- progressive suburb in Melbourne, that <laughs> I live in a bubble of, of you know, um, environmentalism yes. and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's good sometimes to, to get out of that bubble and have yes. conversations that make you uncomfortable mm. because one thing that we're not good at, Is especially this day and age, is listening to the other opinion Mm. and going, okay, you have a different opinion than me. That's fine. It's not an attack on me personally. Sometimes it might be, but it shouldn't be. And and it's okay that we disagree because we're allowed to disagree. We're we're fortunate enough to be in the position to disagree. And we can agree on some things and disagree on some of the other things. And I might not have an opinion on something and that's Mm. okay as well. And I think that's something we – and we, we can forgive each other for those opinions of um, – which sometimes we can get sort of stuck on, you know, that person said that one thing that I don't agree with. I agree with everything else, but that one thing, so they're a bad person. And it's like, well, are they? Are they a bad person or do you just disagree with them on something? I think that's something that comes up quite a bit on both sides. I think.
0: Mm. It's an interesting one in, in the way that um, – like we don't want people to be one-dimensional because people – I guess so. How they view something or how they respond also depends on how they're feeling that day. Something could have could have happened that's more major. Um, and I, I I had a instance where I think the only ever time on LinkedIn that that I had to block comments was when I did. Um, I thought Mother's Day would be a really great day to talk about the superannuation motherhood gap. <laughs> and
1: there was some of the wrong way.
0: Yeah, and there was a, a there was a group of women who um who who disagreed uh, quite publicly. <laughs> Because um, they said it was not the right day And and then, you know, I think that was quite uh, uh, I did feel a bit down by that But I was speaking to one of my mentors And he, he kind of said that The fights that you're going to take on And my fight is, is really about gender equality mm. um, Sometimes the people that you are fighting for as well Will not be on board with what you're trying to do But you don't need them on board um, Because, you know, like you your passion for climate change, ethical investments, ultimately, it's going to help the community. Um, for me, you know, it can be a divisive topic given gender equality within women itself. Um, it depends on how they they see it. Um, you know, and, and it's kind of almost more hurtful when it's coming from a woman attacking you, like for me in, in my space, because I'm like, surely it's better that we all stand together as a community and we can lift each other um, mm. but I've had to learn to not, um, take it to heart and understand that there could be other things that are going on in their life. And they may not actually be, they may not be on this journey with me, but the journey that I am on is for them as well. Mm. You know, um, so that's,
1: <laughs> I think that that comes back to like the idea of framing, right? Mm. Like this, the concept that the, the frame that you see the world in, yeah. You know, the brain inherently doesn't see anything. It, it assumes everything all the time. Mm. And um, and the more we take in information, the faster it makes assumptions. It's a survival technique. And so we start framing the world in certain ways and expecting people to act certain ways. And and that's based off our, our mm. broader experience. And so if, you, if you're if you talking about gender equality and, and a woman turns around to you and says, you know, what you're doing or how you're doing it is wrong, mm. it's because your frame and her frame aren't aligned. Mm. And and the way you might deliver that message to her versus a group of men versus a group of women, a different age group, versus is a different group of women altogether versus, you know, a corporate group versus a, a mother's group versus whatever it might be that, that frame needs to be different and adjusted. There's a, it was a really great book um, called don't even think about it. Um, and I can't remember the author, but I'll, I'll let you know what it is and you can chuck it in your comments section when you post this, mm. but it, it's about climate change, but it's all about the human um interpretation of, of information and, and how to change minds how we form our opinions and and you could take the climate change aspect out of the entire book mm. and then replace it with a gender equality yeah or re- replace it with uh with anything literally anything and it, it, it rings true in the same way that we, we tend to politicize things we tend to create the in crowd and the out crowd mm. and so if you're talking about gender equality that group of women that may have had a go at you may have had put you in the out crowd because mm. they might label you a certain way yeah when and they might be fighting for the same cause in their own way outside mm. of that okay. but they've separated themselves you know from that and um you know we don't you don't know what their frames are and it's often yep. that's the biggest challenge with a lot of this sort of stuff is the the framing and the in and out crowd and that kind of tribalism can drive as much good or bad um change with people as anything
0: and it's part of the journey as well, if you're going to have a point of view. And I think that's always the, the I wouldn't say a danger, but that's where you grow when you're trying to have a point of view, um, when you're not kind of, because part of it is that you could just say nothing about what you feel at all, right? Mm. And then you end up buying a turtle. <laughs> that's all it that happens. In your area with ethical investments, mm. you've you've really made it your your niche, your specialist area. Why, why is that so important for you and, and how does that help your clients?
1: I was having a conversation with a fund manager about this yesterday and I've, I've been using whatever ethical investments I could mm-hmm. from day one. So I think that the, the, the products weren't available 10 years ago. There's $3 <laughs> trillion-ish in the Australian superannuation system and that could be moved to make substantial change. Mm-hmm. With the absence of any government strategy, we could completely do it in the, pri- in the private sector, which apparently is the government strategy, to just not do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with the right engagement. And if you look at the, I suppose the surveys, so RIA, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, did a survey and they found that 90% of people expected their super fund was already doing this. They're already making change and, and being responsible in the community. Um, which we, we know they're not, not necessarily, mm. um, that, you know, 35% of, of investors are specifically looking for environmentally, socially, and governance-aware investments. So we know that the demand's there and we know that people want to do it and most of the time they just don't know that they can do it. Mm. So that's sort of one aspect of it, that there is that demand. And then and secondly, I think it's just an important thing to, to me. I, I look at where we can mobilise capital in a, in a positive way, it, that there's sort of this idea that you've either got capitalism, which is bad or communism, which is bad mm-hmm. and all for different reasons. And how do you solve this problem? And there's so much nuance in between that and, and inherently financial markets and the allocation of, of assets can can instigate that change quite substantially. And we're seeing that, this, I think it's, it, the environmental one's easy. Some of the really powerful stuff that's not being discussed as much in the, in the ESG and ethical investments is, is the areas of social and governance. So your your board makeup and your gender equality on that front, um, Mm. I think is something that's really, really important that's coming through. And we know that, you know, more gender diverse boards have better performing companies. Um, Your diversity, um, you know, and the diversity quotas within your company and or on your boards as well, because we know that the more diverse the board, the better the performance of that company. Mm -hmm. So there's all these factors that are non-financial that substantially improve investor performance. And then the best part of that is that you're not only getting a better return on your investment, but you're also getting there's broader beneficiaries than yourself. It's not just you that benefits from your investment. It's not your your returns. Society gets returns. Mm-hmm. And we're really starting to see that in the rise of impact investing, where people are willing to even take less returns to invest more philanthropically and put money into things like there's one fund that do a disability housing um, fund. They open up periodically for new investors and they go out and buy real estate throughout Australia and fit that real estate out with full accessibility. So, you know, full rails, ramps, bathroom, um, adjustable height benches, and then they rent those apartments to people who need that accessibility, who can't rent normal apartments. Mm. So you're doing a good social, with a good, great social outcome, but you're also, um, getting a return on your investment. It's in, the same as renting out another apartment to a, and if, you know, someone who doesn't need the accessibility. But you've got that double whammy. And I think that's really powerful. I think there's so many aspects that we don't consider. It, it's easy to just go, oh, you're yeah, climate change or not climate change when it hmm. comes to ethical investment. But there's so many social aspects that are really hard to quantify um, that companies are doing great work in. you know A lot of the corporate engagement Work um, is really important, uh, but it's also really important to, to identify where a company is doing something inherently wrong and making up for do- something by being publicly right. Mm. So you look at like a, an Amazon of the world that ha- you have widespread um, mistreatment of workers and underpayment of workers based on their conditions. And they don't even get toilet breaks in some circumstances and then they'll go and give money to a charity or, 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 or sponsor someone through university. So it's great that they're doing one thing, but are they just trying to balance out their their, their eth- ethical balance sheet or are they actually trying to create good? Because maybe if they didn't give the money and just raise the salaries of their workers, they might create a better outcome anyway, mm. and reduced inequalities and what have you. So yeah, I think it's just something that I have an extreme interest in. And and I realized last year, before I decided to sip 100% into this, that I already had 25% of my client base that would be dark green. Another 10 or 15% were a light green Mm -hmm. and the others just hadn't been asked yet okay and i have not had a single no this year from any client and these clients rage the oldest client i've discussed this with was 82 years old (laughs) common thing we get is wow i didn't know we could actually do that
0: yeah yeah but that's i think that's such an an amazing story right but it shouldn't you know i mean it shouldn't sound amazing i shouldn't look at you and go oh nathan you're so special (laughs) I, this really should be... should be the norm. It should be the norm. It should be the norm. So let's say if you, if, if you had the ability to then um, change our financial planning industry in this aspect, what would you like to see from us as, as an industry when it comes to ethical investments?
1: I, I'm, a, I'm inherently biased in this. Um, I'd, I'd love to not be a specialist of ethical investments. Yeah. If, if that didn't exist... Um, I think it, uh, last year I was on a podcast with XY and I made the comment that you know ESG investing and in, is you know it's like calling beer premium beer when it's actually Coronas that are you know not premium beer in Australia. I'd love everyone to it just just to be the norm. Yes, that environmental, social, and governance impacts to be considered. Yes, um, if you take it back to that investment basis, we only record financial metrics for to value companies. I want to. I would love to see us recording social metrics as well. And environmental metrics and saying this company's worth this much because of yeah. this re- this capital inflow and this environmental impact and you know relative to their peers um, and I think we're starting to get the data to make those changes um, but I would I also love every advisor to have the tools available to them to go out there and and have confidence to talk about this stuff so mm-hmm. I the common uh, ear or I suppose concern I hear from advisors on this space is you know I'd love to do more ethical investments but uh, there's just so many products. It's so complicated. How do I know that I'm using the good one? Mm. How do I know that I'm using something that is greenwashed or something that is misleading? And, and how do I have that conversation with the client to ascertain that? I don't want to sit there in a room and say, "Oh, you know, hi Dawn. Do you want your investments to encourage human sla- modern slavery?" Who's going to say no to that? Like literally, no one. So I, I think I think that in itself is quite a a massive gap in our market you know, I, I was quoted in afr the other day as saying half are nonsense when are referring to um managed fund a lot of the funds out there that they talk esg and they label themselves um but they're not actually true to label um mm. ethical investments um you know that it's not uncommon to see yes um some of the biggest funds in the world are the biggest culprits the ones that blow the loudest horn on greenwashing are the biggest culprits in this space um which i think is really really interesting so yeah, I'd love that information to be widely available, and I'd love advisors to just have it part of their process. You talk about yeah. goals, talk about in, what's important to you with investment products. Now let's talk about what's important to you from your values, and including mm-hmm. in that how you'd want your money to be invested.
0: I don't think it's impossible, but it's um, the stage that we're in. Yes, it's. Uh, I find as well, there's an added layer that sometimes licensees as well uh, are very focused on on the compliance aspects of things that that you know this sort of space to go in it becomes more difficult for an advisor to actually mm. pursue. So I, I, I do see that wave of change going that it's becoming a conversation that's coming up a lot more. And you're right, advisors just need to be better supported to um, have those conversations and be able to provide robust advice around that area.
1: I think that's a, an interesting point you raise around licensees because mm. the, co- the code of ethics specifically says if it's not on your approved product list, but it's in the best interest of the client, you don't have an excuse mm. that they, they if it's the best interest your licensee can't say no you might have to do some extra work to prove its best interest yes but if you've got a licensee saying no to that that's fundamentally flawed it's it's against the code and that's it, a cultural issue really yeah, within that licensee
0: yeah i don't think they i don't think licensees actually say no i think it's more of like you said it, it would kind of, it don't it then lies into the oh you're going through a a non-approved pathway that can get approval, but then, yeah, it's 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 back to that support bit that you're talking about. If advisors are supported better, just all-rounded with their knowledge, with compliance, just knowing that what they're doing is 100 um, percent helping their client, like it's, it's, it's aligning, and and that's going to be a process that's not too daunting as well. I think that will help the situation. So, yeah, I think we've got work to do, but we it will we will hopefully get there I'll, I'll be hopeful with you Nathan but listeners if you've already been impressed so far with what Nathan's done it doesn't end there his, his ethical um, his ethical focus not, doesn't just extend to how he treats clients his client base um, the ethical investments it's the fact that you've gone out further in your own time um, and you have tried to start up uh, you know you have started up an ethics committee through XY advisor Can you just tell us what's the aim of doing it, and why is it so important for that community to exist within financial advice?
1: I think if you look at our industry as a whole, we have I think seven different bodies, not Mm. different bodies, but different associations, and not one of them had came up with a with a single point. of of reference for us to go to if we have an ethical dilemma and if you look at whose responsibility that was i think traditionally we've been siloed within our licensees and you don't look outside of your licensee at all and then that's become more and more redundant with i think xy advice has done a great job of breaking those barriers down Mm. and connecting people that otherwise didn't didn't have connections and then i um watched my wife go through a process with the ethics committee um, she's a lawyer and mm. so the law Institute of Victoria um, they had a case go through there and within that um, I suppose within that process they thought they were on the on the right side and the ethics committee said no we think you're conflicted because of these things and they said okay and moved on and passed that case to another lawyer and that was it and it was it was settled oh. and I was fascinated by this so I looked into it more and and it turns out that the ethics committee of the law Institute's actually been brought up Know, as evidence in court of way someone's acted in a certain way and relied on. And it has quite substantial strength while not being legally binding. And I thought, why don't we have that? How has no one in our industry gone and done this already? Mm. And I asked around and no one really has. And and I'm sure you were the same, Dawn. You probably have a little network of your own advisors and, and friends in the industry that you chat to. Or you go to your licensee or something. But I was like, no, this, there's something wrong here. So I created it. Um, mm-hmm. I had the I had the idea. I spoke to Emily about it. It kind of lay dormant for a little bit, and then she rang me at the start of the year and said, "I've got a couple of people that want to, you know, Andrew Lane's one of them." Who said, "Yeah, you know, Andrew." Been chatting with Andrew about it. He wants to get involved. Do you want to kick this off? So grab Michael Miller as well, who's um, who's my go-to. He's my ethics committee, um, and we we kicked off this uh, this group of people. And I think the core of it was supposed to be that we didn't want we didn't want it to look or feel like any other. Organization. We didn't want it to have any of the inherent um, grandfathered aspects that might come around from you know, different associations or groups or, or anything like that. And we definitely didn't want it to be eight white middle-aged blokes in blue suits agreeing <laughs> with each other. That was agreed from the start. So one or two is fine, but we wanted it to be diverse. Yeah. Um, the, the advice community is becoming increasingly diverse. I think the diversity is giving it more and more strength by the day. And so when we started going through the process, we we it was really important that we had a diverse group of people, and diverse on on gender, on mm. background, on um, experience and expertise, on location, as many ways as we can, so that we had different opinions and different viewpoints. Uh, one of the better applications that I thought um, that applied um, who didn't make make the cut, unfortunately, um, I really like his approach, but someone says to me that's basically your approach. <laughs> We already we already have a Nathan, so we don't need another Nathan. And I was like, that's fair enough. I'm sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, you didn't you didn't make it. And and that was um, yeah, that was I think some strength to the process. So we we had a re- an amazing series of applicants, really mm. really high caliber. We actually had the same amount of male and female applicants. I think we're one more female applicant than we did male applicants as well, um, which we were. I was really hoping for, but given it's twenty percent of the advice industry is. Um, is female or at least licensed advisors yes we did open it up to non-advisors as well because we thought that was important to of have course. non-advisors involved and yeah and so i think it was really about getting the right mix of people one of the key factors it came down to was the mix of technical and emotional driven mm. people as well and that was really important too where we didn't just want a, a group of people that would textbook um across everything we wanted people that could look at it in different ways with different lenses um, we started quite small. We only took on eight to start with, mm. um, and that was really hard, actually. we A couple of times we almost grew, pushed up to ten, but we just felt we could start at eight and add more. Mm. But if we had too many, we can't really pull it back. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've, we've had a couple of determinations come through we're working on at the moment, and then they'll be published soon, and hopefully they'll start to build a bit of a library and a bit of a guidance point and, and some momentum around this where some people have some issues, they can, they can come to us you know, through that channel and have a group of eight people, different backgrounds sort of bring together their views and improve that process. And I think overall raise the standard of advice.
0: And and that is the key to our future in advice is, you know, groups of people who care enough about the profession and the people within it and the clients to just do the right thing. Mm. Um, and I think that that comes really clear from you, Nathan, that, um, in everything you do, you just want to make sure that uh, you want to do the right thing, you know. And the right thing, of course, like you say, it's not black and white what the right thing is, but we're giving it a good goal <laughs> of trying to actually do this.
1: Absolutely. And yeah. if you stuff it up, that's okay. We can yeah. we can forgive each other and keep going and trying, you know. Yes.
0: And that's why it's so exciting, I think, for the people coming into the the industry now, like students learning financial advice, if they've got advisors like you to look up to, I mean, they, they'll understand that the sky's the limit with financial advice, that you can really put your mark on it and you can really get some amazing outcomes and um, I like to say that we do change the world I don't I don't think that's an inflated sense of our job but I feel we that we do change
1: our clients worlds so that's for yeah. sure.
0: yes that's right and even if it's one person and you shift their world it's so rewarding um so I I really thank you Nathan for giving us your time because I know you're so busy um just ethically making the world a better place <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show and just sharing your journey with us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Subscribe now to be notified of new episodes. Let's change how the story ends. The information discussed during this episode includes strategies that are general in nature. As everyone's situation is different and the information discussed does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs, you should always seek personal advice with regard to your own personal circumstances.